Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlotte and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're talking about the video game Horizon Zero Dawn. We have always said that we're going to be fairly open-minded about what a story is, and I think video games have a lot of uh, storytelling aspects that get ignored in a lot of conversations, so we'll talk about that. If you've not played the video game, we will sort of make sure that we're giving a decent amount of plot for it so that you can understand what's going on in the conversation. Regardless, as I know that less people are likely to have played this than maybe have seen Nightmare Before Christmas, which is actually one of our least downloaded episodes. Interesting. I don't know if it's because we posted it after Halloween. Yeah, maybe. Maybe a good one to put in the queue for before next Halloween. Yeah. That being said, we'll obviously be spoiling the plot for Horizon Zero Dawn. If you do intend on playing it, it is a very well-told story. I would go and play it first. Before listening to this episode. We're doing this episode directly after we did 70s by Neil Stevenson last week. Uh, It's a similar reason for why we did the Veronica Mars episode after we did the Raymond Chandler episode. So if you haven't listened to the Neil Stevenson episode yet, I would recommend listening to that one first because we're probably going to refer back to it a couple of times. And therefore, we'll also be dropping some spoilers for that book in here. Any other spoilers or content warnings that we have, we'll drop right here. Hello, no real spoiler warnings this week, just a a few things on Seven Eves, as I said. Over to Charlene. As far as content warnings, there's really not a lot. We do touch on depression as a factor with one of the characters, and there's obviously passing reference to like the in-game violence that happens as part of the plot, but that's kind of it. Cool. It's a cheery week for once. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. Okay, so Horizon Zero Dawn is set in a world where machines roam the planes like beasts. They act in a very animalistic way, but they're made of metal and wires and such. The story focuses on a character called Aloy, who was originally part of the Nora tribe, but was outcast at birth for reasons that she's not clear on. It later transpires that it's because she was, quote, birthed from the mountain, and was just found as a crying baby, and various people claim that this was a bad omen. It's an extremely matriarchal society, and the fact that she doesn't seem to have a mother is a big problem for them. She persists and manages to get back into the tribe, and goes off exploring the wilderness in general, and trying to find out where she came from. We find out that this world is actually set a thousand years in the future, So as we go on, we find out that a thousand years before the start of the game, machines have been being developed uh, to be able to self-reproduce and to consume biomass for energy, which uh, tied in with the military-industrial complex that's going on results in all life on Earth being wiped out. However, a woman called Dr. Elizabeth Sobeck uh, masterminds a plan called Zero Dawn, which works to have the seeds to restart human life on the planet and to guide it through AIs so that the new human race can be taught once the planet is inhabitable again. And it comes about that Aloy is in fact a clone of this original Doctor that has been brought back to by one of the AIs to try and stop another one of the AIs from destroying all life on Earth again. That's the broad strokes of the story. Um, It's a game that you can play for hundreds of hours. So we're going to get into some of the more specific details as we're talking about them. But that's sort of the world it's taking place in and the challenges that she's facing. So I think that's because we haven't done a video game before. It might be a good idea to start by to start with the storytelling elements that we find to be like more unique in this particular medium. I know we talked a little bit about storytelling, storytelling through quest lines in the past when we were talking about the Mandalorian and how we saw some similarities there. But I thought it was interesting that there's really two stories being told at the same time in Horizon Zero Dawn. 
Only two? Like, two main stories. Like, you're getting this, and they're both told, primarily told through a different medium. So, from what I observed, at least, it seems to me that you're getting the story of the world that is, the Aloy inhabits, Mm. and its recent history in terms of, like, this the group of humans that's repopulated the earth and like their history and how their tribes have developed and diverged. You're getting those stories through quest lines and interaction with characters and things like that, which Mm. is a more traditional video game storytelling strategy, I guess. And then you're getting the story of the world that was the world that died and came before, you know, they call it um, the metal world. And the they refer to the humans of, I guess, our age as the ancients. And you find out most of the information about that story, like how that apocalypse happened, who was involved in it, etc., through the found objects in the world, through these like little data caches and, you know, essentially files that Aloy is able to read because she found a device that reads old data. Yeah. So I do want to come back and talk about the focus that allows mm-hmm. her to read the old data. So you're setting up a dichotomy there, and I'm just evaluating that. Certainly, the majority of the world that is stories do come through quest lines and sort of conversations with people. Mm-hmm. There is some stuff that's provided externally from you that. You do find some, like, journals and old books and things like that. Well, there's some journals and old books, and there's, like, there's the hunting lodge that you become a part of, and, like, their history is all written down. Mm-hmm. And one of the societies, you get a certain amount of their backstory through, mm-hmm. like, the history of the Sun King and things. Mm-hmm. But there's also um, some interesting things with the found data that I think only comes up in the ones for the world that is, um, with, like, the anthropological notes about the Banuk, mm. where one society, the Kaja, um, have someone go and, like, examine another one of societies. And you get this anthropological... I say anthropological, like, I remember you you had some feelings about this. Yeah. Having taken cultural anthropology and learned at least the basics of how you should do field notes and things like that, if you are trying to conduct that kind of research, that guy is terrible. Inserting his own biases on everything, not actually trying to just sort of observe and participate but really trying to impose and judge a lot which you're not supposed to do anyway um similarly there's the um little banuk figurines that you find mm-hmm. which have been left by someone who was an who was outcast from a tribe accused of murder and sort of his there's a little story within each of them that tells you a lot about that culture that you don't see a huge amount of. Mm-hmm. Reminds me one of the things we should have made a note of is that we are not discussing the Frozen Wilds expansion to Horizon Zero Dawn because I have not played it yet. I've only played part of it. Yeah, so. but there's plenty to speak about in the rest of the game. But I think to sideline those items and say it's only in the quests does detract a little bit from because, I mean, a lot of that stuff helps to build a very rich, real world that you're mm-hmm. existing in, even before you start looking at the stuff from the past. That's fair. I think what I'm picking up on is a predominant trend, not yeah. an exhaustive trend. Okay. I think most of what you learn, the broad strokes that you get of who is here right now, what has been going on in the last few decades, the war with the between the Karja and a lot of the other tribes and you know the red raids where the Karja were 
basically just ca- capturing people of other tribes to sacrifice to their sun god for religious reasons, and that was a whole thing, like, that only recently stopped. Like, you find out about a lot of that through interactions with people and trying to deal with active quest lines that involve humans that are still alive, basically. Whereas the only way you get information about the metal world and what happened to end it and what happened to usher in the new world is through the old media that most people in the present world wouldn't even have the ability to interact with in any meaningful way. Like, most people have no way of watching a hologram or reading a digital file stick or whatever that she's finding in the wilderness. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I'm just being nitpicky, I guess. No, I think you bring up a good point that the world, like, that the storytelling is very comprehensive and you get a lot of beautiful, short, little side stories that really flesh out both the past world and the present world through found objects like the art, like the Banuk um, figures and the paintings and the vantage points like those are very similar those are very similar storytelling threads that you get and one's about the world that is now the Banuk tribe that's currently active and one's about a man who is on one of the last missions of the metal world and those but you find those objects in very similar ways you have to climb up usually to a very high place to find that thing that tells you a little bit about that one person and their life and the world they lived in. Well, I think the vantages are a really interesting aspect to it because, just sidebar, you said that he was on the last mission. I thought he was just like on a... A last tour of the world before it's gone? Yeah. Maybe. Because he calls it the Apocalypse Storm tour. Apocalypse Storm, yeah. Uh, No, you're right. It was not a mission per se. It was just like, it's his last checking in on locations that were significant in his life and leaving the message to his mom who's already dead. Which I think is really interesting as a storytelling thing, Mm -hmm. as a storytelling device, because it's, that story can't, like, that story is in hidden objects Mm -hmm. that it is a challenge to find. And Mm -hmm. if you don't find them, you don't lose any details about the story as a Mm -hmm. whole. You can play that game, never find advantage, and you would be fine. But it is an additional layer that you can put into a video game that just gives you a sense of the world that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because it's someone who's doing this sort of weird little tour for their own sake and Mm -hmm. going through various places and being like, oh, this is this thing and like this person was doing this job and has like a convincing reason to be going through this stuff in a sort of reminiscing way. But it does tell you... so much more about that world than you might be able to get otherwise. Yeah, particularly about the experience of being part of the military-industrial complex during the period of time that the apocalypse was happening. Because that's the man who is leaving the vantage caches. He was part of the military-industrial complex that ultimately ended up destroying the world. And he struggled with depression and had a whole lot of, like, issues of his own in terms of his personal life that he didn't ever really get to completely resolve or apologize to his parents for being a pretty difficult teenager from his messages and stuff. Okay. And so it's it's him trying to come to terms with a lot of really big stuff. And it's the same thing with the Banuk relics. It's this small story of a man who had an affair with someone else's wife and ended up getting challenged by her husband and maybe killing him it definitely seems like he did and so he's outcast but he's he will never know his child and these are messages to his child so it's interesting they're both leaving messages to someone else who will never see them but one of those one set of messages is to someone who's already dead and one set of messages is to someone who's alive but will never yeah see them there's 
there's a lot of the like lore of the world that's put into those. I mean, particularly you say like the stuff about the old world, the metal world. But I'd like the range of some of the details because some of the stuff you come across is things like you hear about eco terrorists and things, and mm-hmm. very much setting up the world and what was going on that meant that it got to this point where technology was overrunning and mm-hmm. destroying things. Because the lo- and the logs about the alpha recruitment, like the recruitment of the experts to do the Zero Dawn project, like a lot of those, yeah. those are a lot of intense details of what the plan was and how they did it. Yeah. And you get some of the story of Elizabeth Sobek and Ted Farrow and their relationship and how it's gone from a position of working to have robots clean up the oceans and the air and fight a lot of the climate change issues and then having it go too far into that military issue and like having these war robots that are destroying the entire planet. But then you'll have other ones that are just more of that flavor text and just make you feel more about the world. Like there's very much one point when you find an old log of something and it's an advert or like Mm -hmm. a spam email. Yeah, Um, I forgot about that. Just like little quirky things. Like they're going to put however many of these in the game anyway. So Mm -hmm. they just put a few in that are just fun little asides of like, yep, Mm -hmm. spam email is still a thing in 2077. Yeah. Or like there's a few that you find in a particular short quest where you're trying to redirect some water or something like a dam is messed up or something. And when you're going through that, you find some found media that are all from like the same person and it's chronicling essentially the deterioration of a couple of friends who work together is like after work band like they're like a couple of them are in a band and it's really important to one of them and clearly not as important to the other and so it's that like not prioritizing and like essentially the band falling apart and it's very sad but also just so very human you know it's i'm sure that most people who had friends in high school there was someone you knew who had a band that sort of fell apart at some point yeah. It's, you know, it really does run the gamut. So you mentioned earlier that she has the device that allows her to read digital files, mm-hmm. um, which is called a focus within the game. There's a few characters that have them, including a lot of the bad guys, and it can be used as a way to communicate as well as to read files and to watch videos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting as a storytelling device, partially for the way that you use it in game, where it does allow you to see extra things. It allows Aloy to know more of what's going on than other people. There's a, some people who hear that she has this weird ability to know things she shouldn't be able to and assume it's a weird mystical power. But also you have a moment at the start of the game where you're playing as her as a child and she finds this then and it clearly becomes a large part of her existence and teaching her. Mm-hmm. Um, like she knows what things are called because when you look at it with the focus on it tells you what its name is mm-hmm. so it give she's raised by a effectively a single dad character who's adopted her who is also an outcast and we can believe that she's got a much more developed point of view on some things because she's got this extra point of view with the focus Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that that extra point of view that's shaping her is this completely unbiased, pure information input that doesn't it doesn't include any sort of value judgment or anything. It's just, this is the thing. It's it. You get to decide whether that is a good thing or not, or how to use it, or if, to, if you want to use it in any way. It also ends up being a big part of, like, as you say, she has a lot more knowledge or ability to spot things other characters can't. 
like tracks and stuff, but it also means that she has an extra ability to find those data points that she can interact with that other people can't open unless they also have a focus. So like other people might not even know that bit of debris or whatever is some sort of data containing device that has a voice message on it or has a little hologram video, but it shows up in her vision because of that. So it gives you the opportunity to find all those other little stories of the past and sometimes of the of the present, because there's a couple of times you find the kind of data points they made in the past that were made by present day people who found that technology and were like just kind of messing with it. One of the other things that they have for showing you sort of how the new world is perceiving the old world is finding the like things that are labeled in game as ancient charms. And you look at the picture of what an ancient charm is and it's like, oh, that's a set of car keys or um, like ancient bracelets. And then it's a wristwatch. Yeah, I think my favorite of those is the ancient sculpture, which is an artificial heart. Mm. And uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't just have, I mean, actually, I probably would just have one on my mantelpiece or something, but because I'm a weird person, but. Um, okay, Mary Shelley, <laughs> carry around a calcified heart with you. Well, not a calcified one, no. but a, you know. Um, robotic one. Like a robotic one that I didn't need anymore for some reason. I don't know. Someone didn't need oh, it someone anymore. Someone didn't need it anymore. Um, I think there's one, I can't remember. I think it's labeled as an ancient necklace. But it just looks like an eye, like it might be like an eye implant or something, mm. like an optical implant, because it looks like an eye with some like wires coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah, some of those are really weird. Um, <laughs> but great. I th- and there's the collectible items that um, are the ancient vessels, clearly of ceremonial importance, mm-hmm. and their coffee cups. Yeah, <laughs> and it's really great because, uh, like, that's very that's done in a very tongue in cheek way. Because the vendor who wants Aloy to collect these, if she sees them, is convinced that they're in sets of four for the ritualized art of shaving for the the different things you need to shave. And she's like, "Well, mate, what if they?" Maybe they just drink out of them, and he's just like, that's crazy. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, basically. Which is a lot of the game, is yeah. Aloy going, maybe it's this obvious thing, and everyone goes, no, don't be silly. The last thing I want to talk about was some of the things where there's story there, but it's either not obvious at first, or it's just something you have to assume. I think one of the really interesting ones is there's the collections of metal flowers that you collect. Yeah, those are super mysterious. Which are these metal flower-like devices that you'll find throughout the world, always in the middle of an equilateral triangle. Made out of other flowers. Yes. Like real flowers, not metal ones. Yes. I don't think that they're ever directly explained. They're sort of alluded to in some of the conversations as you're learning about Project Zero Dawn. But are they? How are they alluded to when you learn about I think they are. I said oh, I think. Okay. But they seem to be part of the sort of terraforming regrowth of the world and are fired out to land and plant out seeds and propagate new life. But when you pick them up and look at them in your inventory, there's a segment of code in each one that includes a poem. And some of them are classic poems from the romantics and stuff. And some of them seem to be ones that might have been written entirely for the game. But there's this, at least the way I interpret it, is there's this idea that the people that were designing the project saw this way of sending out the seeds and wanted to include, as well as the new life in the form of plant life, preserving some element of art in that as well. That I think is just a nice perspective on those people and their mm-hmm. attempts to, like, 
a group of people were putting together this project who knew that they were going to die mm-hmm. in a period of time. I mean, I guess most people do, but in a shorter period of time than natural, and felt that that was something worth preserving. And it tells you a lot about it. Mm-hmm. I think that relates to the very end scene where Elizabeth Sobek is talking about what her mother told her when she was young, that it's not enough to be smart. You also have to, you know, be kind and, you know, serve life and do good in the world, essentially. Yeah. And the majority of the people that she has on her team seem to abide by similar rules. It's With the notable exception of the guy that designs what ultimately is the bad guy AI. Yes. Well, we can circle back around to that. It's interesting that you bring up that final scene in which the remains of Elizabeth Sobeck are found, and they are within one of those triangles of flowers. Right. Although it's unclear whether she's laying on a metal flower or not, but... Or whether she just is one. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we move on to our next topic? Sure. I know you wanted to talk about religion and tribalism as part of the podcast, mm-hmm. and one thing that I want to refer back to that you already said when we were talking about storytelling is you mentioned that a lot of people seem to view Aloy's ability to know things other people don't know because of her focus as this sort of mystical ability, and so I wanted to point out that in a lot of the different tribes and like religious beliefs that you see reflected in the different groups of this world, there is a pretty consistent entanglement of technology and mysticism in perspective and like because people have lost the comprehension of how machines are made and how they are fixed and how they work they have ascribed a lot of mystical significance to them particularly like most obviously the banuk who worship like the blue light that comes from like the led components of machines and view it as like the essence like the soul basically and something that all that humans also have etc yeah so well it's interesting i think that you sort of see that across the board to an extent if we look at the four tribes that we hear the most about in the game there's obviously the nora that we start off with who worship all mother which is literally a mountain that actually did birth them as we find out later like that's where reintroduction of humans started for the people who became the Nora from within the depths of this mountain mm-hmm. um, and are also superstitious about the metal devil as this big the remains of this big machine that they can see in the distance yeah yeah and they're very superstitious about place it's the sacred land surrounds all mother and if you go outside of that area you're exiled and you can't come back unless you're given a special permission at which point all religion goes to one side because obviously permission from a random person is all you really need. Anyway, <laughs> you have the Kaja, who are primarily out in a sort of more deserty area mm-hmm. and worship the sun god. And hmm, I'm going to get very critical about organized religion, aren't I? And the sun king, who is their leader and was chosen by the sun god. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very much like divine mandate centered right. community and they view like the judgment of the sun as like final and it, it seems to very much date back to a period of time when access to shade or not like you were at the mercy of the sun basically for your survival yeah so they're they similarly have these very strict tenets but they're more bureaucratic yeah the priests have got a very important role to play but they're not the leaders of the organ they're not the leaders of the civilization in the same way as the matriarchs are with the Nora. Yeah, they're they're bureaucrats. They're yeah. like politicians essentially, who kind of judge everyone and manipulate things. Yeah. There's the Osram that we get honestly less information about. Well but they're you find out they're a democratically led society, which yeah. is very interesting. 
although they're also a patriarchal society, not as badly as the Karja are, but they are, uh, like, women can't be elders. Anyway, they are a more democratic society, and they are organized in clans. Yeah. They sort of seem to be the scientist tribe of the world at this point. Like they're... No. They are mechanical engineers. Which... They're they're not scientists. They're not trying to learn or prove things. Okay, I was using it as an analogy for it, but okay. Okay, so they're the mechanical engineers. I mean, they probably world. have some scientists. Okay. They they have people pushing boundaries, etc., but they're mechanical engineers. Okay, so they also are the mechanical engineers of this world. They're very interested in technology. They build the Kaja capital, Meridian. Mm-hmm. It's a little on the nose has these huge elevators that it's noted were made by the Osaram because they are these great craftsmen. We don't ever really hear about them having that much of a religion. They don't seem particularly religious, no. Like, they seem to be very empirical in their orientation. They're concerned with what they can put their hands on and manipulate in the here and now. They build things, they take things apart, they salvage. They're very big on salvage, which makes sense because they've got a whole decrepit middle world to pull from. And it's an interesting foil to the Kajia because they seem so pragmatic and so people-oriented. There's one character whose family is kidnapped and that's how he's that's how he's manipulated by the bad guys. Family seems to be important to several of them in a particularly strong way. I mean, obviously family is important to everybody. No, but it makes sense because they're yeah. organized by clans. But there's... One notable instance where a member of the Osram is really upset because the Kaja priests are keeping him away from a monument that his husband had been forced to build Mm -hmm. while under their control. When he was enslaved by them, basically. And they're like, and he's being kept away from that by the religion side of things, and that's causing an issue of him. Do you see what I mean? Like, and you have the contrast of the Kaja priests who value this monument because, oh, it's a monument to the sun god, versus the Osaram guy who's like, it doesn't matter what it's of, it's the craftsmanship that went into it and Mm -hmm. it was made by his hands. Mm -hmm. So you get an interesting combination with that. and then Which also means you get this casually inserted confirmation that the Osaram society does not buy into a sort of heteronormative paradigm. Right. And that's not a big deal. Like, no, nothing's made of that being, you know, a situation, so... And it doesn't seem to phase Aloy either. No, it doesn't seem to be a, a thing that seems weird to her, even though, and she's in a very matriarchal society, so yeah. it's interesting that she doesn't care either. So presumably nobody cares in, in the Nora either. Sure. And then finally you have the Banuk, right. who live up in the Cold Lands, um, and I think we learn more about in the Frozen Wilds so that I haven't played. But you learn a you, decent amount of do. them in the main quest um, line. They seem to almost worship machines. They're Almost, yeah. inclined to modify their bodies with parts of machinery. And you find a clan of them that have, for technological reasons beyond their control, have a lot of machines who are extremely calm and exude this blue light in- mm-hmm. to be able to live harmoniously alongside them. They seem to view machines as like a higher life form that humans eventually become. Because they, mm-hmm. they have this idea that like people have a blue light but you can't see it, and that the blue light is souls or something. It's very Um, nebulous. I might be misremembering. No, Um, that that sounds plausible. But so they they seem to view machines as less of a separate type of existence. 
Yeah. But more of a continuum and something to aspire to, I guess, or to join at some point. But they yeah. also hunt the machines and like they, I, there's like a symbiotic relationship situation there where it's like we we use their parts to strengthen and, you know, to endure. And then at some point, some part of us becomes some part of them, I think. They think there's some intangible part of humans that becomes the blue light that machines need. It is a hunting with um, that sort of respect that you get in some cultures with hunting for us. Yeah. Not hunting for us, but mm-hmm. hunting from humans. Yeah, where you humans. want to acknowledge the sacrifice and... Yeah. So you have these four main tribes, and there's a couple of other ones that are hinted at that you might meet might meet one person from that mm-hmm. and they're just noted as being out west somewhere. Like, okay, if I try and go west, I I meet an out of bounds warning. But, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but they're interesting as these four sort of building blocks for a lot of the plot and the way that they can hold things around, and they all, to some degree or another, have these strict scriptures or rules that they must abide, codes of honour, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Like even the Osaram who don't seem to subscribe in the same religious way to what the other people do, there's the sort of things that you, you just don't do that. Sort and of there's some sexism there too in terms of like who can hold leadership positions with the Osaram. Because I think that you find somebody who's gone away from their clan's lands and doesn't want to go back because she has more independence and freedom. Oh, isn't it Forge Master? I think Don't so. You f- yeah, yeah, you you find a um a Forge Master that feels that way. Yeah. yeah, and it's like they weren't they would wouldn't want me to be in charge in the way that I'm totally capable of being because of sexism about particularly higher offices in the community. So it seems pretty egalitarian on the lower strata, but which is interesting that then. Well, I suppose it's sort of within the Kaja society that Aaron's sister. Mm-hmm. is allowed to hold high office. Also, there seems to be an implication that she and the Sun King have got something going on. Yeah. Um. But yeah, okay. But you have all these strict rules and codes there, and then you have Aloy, who's been brought up outside all of that. Mm-hmm. As you say, she's got this very... She's got the focus providing her very unbiased information. It's like, mm-hmm. this is what this is. Mm-hmm. And every time she comes up against, you can't do that because it's not what's it's not what's done. Or, oh, it must be this because of our superstitions. Mm-hmm. And she's just sort of confused by it. It's like, well, you could just do the thing. Or, well, that's probably like that because the rock fell down the hill. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, the, um, she, she kind of Occam's razors a lot of stuff. And it's just like, okay, you're inserting a whole lot of bullshit that comes from you and is not relevant to the actual situation. Let's look at the actual situation. And it, there's an interesting question of nature versus nurture there because Elizabeth Sobek was a scientist. Yeah. And so presumably there are certain aspects like intellectual curiosity and things like that that are probably part of her temperament of just like not accepting what other people say but wanting to investigate things herself and figure out what the truth of the actual situation is. And wanting to go and explore regardless of what Rost, her sort of father figure, is trying to tell her to do. But it allows for some interesting storytelling within having her explore cultures that she doesn't fully understand yet. Mm-hmm. And also being in a position to question a lot of those rules that have been set up. That allows mm-hmm. the creators of the games to sort of make their own social commentary on, is this rule stupid? Right, um, yeah. Like, is abiding by, we must do this because the mountain tells us so, or the sun tells us so, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How reasonable is that? And also, it gives a lot of interesting opportunities to show how one event can be read in different ways by within the same group. So, like, with 
Aloy being generated by the mountain, some of the matriarchs think that she's like a chosen one who was made by the mountain for a reason, which it turns out is the case. But there are also matriarchs who think that she's cursed and it's a bad thing and, you know, she doesn't have a mother. So keeping her within the tribe is going to like doom all of them. Yeah. And so some of them, I think, I think the ones that think she's cursed wanted to kill her. Yes. And the, at least one or more, definitely Tirsa was like the, the main one who's like, that's a terrible idea, but it doesn't seem like she had no support on, on the let's not kill the baby argument. They were like, no, like she came from the mountain. Like we all came from the mountain. Like our foremothers came from the mountain. Like we, we can't throw that away basically. And so their compromise, because they have to figure something out is to have her raised outside of the tribe by as an outcast. Yeah. So here you have like the heads of this religion who look at the same exact event with the same history to interpret it and come to completely opposing conclusions. And then you have the same situation with the Karja with the Sun King, the Sun King before the one who has just ascended during the story was a bloodthirsty despot who was sending his people out to raid neighboring tribes to take their people to sacrifice in a like essentially like a coliseum to appease the sun or whatever, but he was crazy. And some people viewed his madness as a sign that the sun no longer favored him and his son ends up rising up and overthrowing him. And so some people see that and they're like, the true sun king has been deposed or has been usurped and like, this is terrible. And like his other son must be the next ruler or whatever. And then other people are seeing this exact same event and are saying, oh no, the rising up of his son to overthrow him and, and, and usher in a kinder age, that's the will of the son. That's proof that the previous king had lost favor. Which is what within the game has caused there to be the Kaja and the Shadow Kaja. Right. So there's like some who are like, no, 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 no. The bloodthirsty king, he was the true king. Yeah. And we have to follow the will of the son in overthrowing his son. But it's just, it's people, like... Yeah. Humans do that. (laughs) (laughs) Humans do do that. Speaking of, like, the tribalism and the religious beliefs that kind of influence a lot of the characters' behaviors that we interact with as we play Aloy through the world, one of the interesting things that stood out for me is when Aloy sort of rants about how everyone always refers to her as, like, Aloy of the Nora, and it pisses her off because she was raised as an outcast and she was never actually accepted by that community or raised by them. It's just what people conclude by seeing her. And just, you know, it's one of the many aspects of her kind of discovering who she is and who she isn't and what factors kind of came together to make her the person she is. So I think there's so many different threads like that throughout the story um, because she is trying to find out where she came from. So yeah. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I think just some of your verbiage in there is interesting in itself because she spends all this time trying to find out who she is by finding out where she came from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, certainly at the start of the game, she's not done yet. So a lot of the people that she meets along the way are sort of defining her as she goes and helping her understand who she is, regardless of where she came from as such. Does that make sense? Explain a bit more. So she spends all this time preoccupied as to who her mother is. Understandable, she's been raised knowing about Nora culture and knowing that who your mother is is important. She has Rost, who is like a father to her, but that 
means very little in this culture. We never meet anyone else who talks about who their father is. Um, we meet several people who mention who their mother is. There's Val, whose mother is the war chief. We hear about that, but we don't hear about people's fathers as much. Yeah, in fact, in the uh, wiki entry for him, it says who his mother and his sister are. does not mention who his father is. Yeah. Um, so she has this concern about who that is, and she eventually finds out that she was found and that her mother's not waiting for her or anything. So she's going on this quest of self-discovery, but the people that she's meeting and talking to give her much more of an insight into who she is within this world than anything else. So she comes across Erend, who first of all makes her, as as multiple men do in this story, somewhat uncomfortable by clearly being very into her and she does not know what to do with this information and is just like carefully puts that down and says no thank you. (laughs) Yeah, which is understandable that she just kind of doesn't, like, know how to respond because she was raised all by herself in the wilderness, not allowed to talk to anyone but her father. Figure. Yeah, but her, he's her father, he adopted her, he raised her, like, that's her father. Like It is, but, like, I don't think the name is ever attributed. Sure. But Point being, her parent. Like, yeah. the only person she literally, like, ever talks to pretty much until she's about an adult almost or 16 or 18 or something like that old enough for the proving is literally her parent so she has no social skills at all her social interactions outside of that are having a rock fight with bust yeah some of the neighbor kids that are mean to her yes like that's it not Um, exactly the best uh, environment to develop healthy social skills or know how to flirt or respond when someone's flirting with you or any of that but a lot of the assumptions that Erin brings into the situation and her responses for that, I think, give her a lot of guidance as to who she is. She, a lot of it is cast on her being outside of those systems. Mm-hmm. She's defined herself through being out, an outsider, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. Similarly, you get her interactions with Nil. Yeah. Where Nil is a... Mercenary? I think a mercenary has to be getting paid. He, he um he's a previous a reformed war criminal. Yeah, um, reformed. He he killed a lot of people in the red raids. Claimed himself as guilty when that was listed as a crime. Mm-hmm. Went and served his time in jail, and now spends his time roaming around killing bandits because no one complains when you kill bandits. Yeah, he is a man who has decided he is best at killing people, and that is what he likes to do: is kill people. And kind of approaches this as like an art, something that you can improve at. And uh, it's he's real weird. And he gets very philosophical about it as well. He does, yeah. Like, and also very creepy. Yeah. About like the light going out of people's eyes and stuff. And a- Aloy meets him and he's like, oh yeah, we're the same because we both c- go and kill bandits. And it's like, mm, our reasons are very different. I am not you. Yeah. There are several times that you're given choices in the game that don't make a huge amount of difference, as far as I can tell. One of the choices you do get at the end of the game is whether or not to kill Nil. Mm-hmm. Which one did you pick? I didn't kill him. Yeah, precisely. That's why I didn't know. I was just curious. Yeah, and I think, again, like there are so many threads in this story that always come back around to, are you in service of life or death? Or, you know, was this choice made with a greater understanding of how it impacts other people or not? Yeah. And I think Nil and Aloy, it's one of those. Nil kills bandits because he likes to kill. That's what he knows he's good at and finds satisfying. That's about his own enjoyment and killing people. 
Aloy kills bandits because they're terrorizing communities near them and are hurting innocent people. So she kills them to protect other people who are helpless and to free prisoners, etc. So she is killing in service of life, whereas Nil is just killing. Yeah. For the lulls. He's a nihilist. I mean, he is. He's a nihilist, and it's, it's very on the nose. Like, he doesn't see any greater purpose in life, as far as we can tell. Like, he seems to just want to focus on what he can do now. Yeah. The next challenge. So, that quest to de- re- define herself beyond just being an outsider, she ends up seeing an image of... Elizabeth Sobeck's face, which obviously is pretty much her face. And she's like, well, that, oh, that must be my mother. I've got to go and find her. And as she's going on this quest, she comes across the character of Silence, who is interested in knowledge about the metal world because he wants knowledge about the metal world and also because he potentially wants knowledge about Hades and power. But that's unclear. He just seems to want knowledge. Yeah. He just wants to know as much about everything as he can. And he he gets frustrated with Aloy because she's fixated on the information about her mother rather than about the world as it is and the world and how the world came to be as it is. Mm-hmm. So some of his messages are somewhat harsh. Mm-hmm. But they contain an important message, which is that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. It's, that's not who you are. That's just a yeah. thing that you're using as the way to define yourself. Yeah. He's saying where you came from isn't the same thing as who you are. Yeah. And that's true. And it's it's interesting because while it's true in general, it also isn't totally true about Aloy in particular. Because who she is is very entangled with where she came from in that she's a clone. Right. But I think the thing is that she gets a solution to her identity issue at the end. Because when she finds Elizabeth Sobek, mm-hmm. that scene is shown with the playing of a recording between Elizabeth Sobek and Gaia. Because mm-hmm. Elizabeth Sobek talked to AIs a disturbingly large amount. Well, she made them to learn and have personalities and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but the conversation is about various things, including the fact that Elizabeth Sobek doesn't have children, and Gaia asks, what would you want of them? Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Sobek is able to articulate into Aloy's ears some of the hopes she would have for a child and what they might be, which gives Aloy a message of guidance. Uh, the, the guidance that she's been looking for is in as far as what should you value in the world? Mm-hmm. Which she's already been doing. She just gets sort of a confirmation of that goal. But she also, you get that scene where she sort of mourns the loss of Elizabeth Sobek because she's mm-hmm. been dead for a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, but also manages to sort of disentangle herself. Like it's, they're both in one place, they're not the same person sort of thing. And she gets to have her own agency. So she ends up with words of guidance, not a proclaimed identity because of it. Does that make sense? Kind of. Like, it gives her a little bit of reassurance that the woman that she came from, not necessarily in the way that she expected, like, would have been proud of her, would have approved the way that she lives her life and her orientation on the world, the way that she interacts with other people and the things that she values. You know, that she, she is living up to the dreams of her progenitor even if that progenitor didn't, like, birth her in any sort of conventional sense. 
But it is only a, they would be proud of you and no more than that. Like, it's not right. who you are. Yes. that Yeah, she gets the confirmation that Dr. Sobek, which is kind of the closest thing I have to a mother, even if it's the person I was cloned from, it's not quite the same. She would be proud of me. I am living my life according to principles that, you know, she espoused. But also, we're different people. That do- That doesn't tell me who I am. It just tells me. Yeah. That I am carrying on a tradition, sort of, in a way. Yeah. And yes, in a tradition, because in that same story, Dr. Sobek is talking about lessons she learned from her mother, values her mother passed on to her, to Dr. Sobek, that are very much in line with those same wishes she would have for a child. So it's very much for Aloy, who's also grown up in a very matriarchal society where, like, all the matriarchs are like grandmothers. She also has some sense that she's part of this a line of women that valued life. Yeah. Uh-huh. beyond just Dr. Sobek. But like her her grandmother or her mother or whatever you would call Dr. Sobek's mother also held those same views. Technically Sobek's mother would also be a mother. That's why I was yeah. saying yeah. that's why I was saying whether you'd want to call Dr. Sobek's mother her mother or her grandmother, it's yeah. Yeah. What else do you want to say about identity and parental figures? It's kind of a side note about identity and parental figures, but I was kind of really mad that Rost couldn't be Aloy's mother for the proving ceremony thing. There's like a point in the proving when you're like getting preparing for it or whatever. It's like Mm. a meditative part. Yeah. Where I think your mother is supposed to be a part of that and Rost isn't a part of that. Surely other women die before their kids are old enough for the proving. Like, I guess, I think it's said somewhere like other female relatives can step in. So if you have like aunts or grandmother or something, but, but I mean, surely there is some other precedent for not having a female relative. But I guess if you're part of the community, someone would step up for you. Tirsa ends up, I think, stepping up for her to do it. But it's like, no, Ross raised her. He was, he's there. Like, he was her mother, basically. Like, he was her parent. He was the only parent that she had, really. So it made me mad. While I agree with you, he couldn't come into the city because he's an outcast. I know, and that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Also, like, I do wonder about that culture, whether whether they even have a word for father. Mm. Because I don't think she ever calls him her father. Yeah. But the more I think about it, I don't think you ever meet anybody's father. I don't think anyone ever references someone's father. I think that you might either be a woman and continue to have children or encourage your children to have children until you become a matriarch or a great-grand matriarch, or you're a man and you go out and hunt until you're dead. Yeah. Because there's no old men in that society either. That's true. Well, there's Rost, and he's not in the society. But he's also not that old. He's like in his 40s or something. Right. He's not that old. When when you have a society that is run by great grand matriarchs, who literally you get that position by having a great grandchild, mm-hmm. like 40 isn't that old. Yeah, that's true. Be a grandmother at like 30. Theoretically, yes. But the Tissa is clearly not 46. No. She's clearly in her like 60s or something. Plus. Yeah. yeah. Or something. But yeah. I don't know. It's just that is an interesting point. Going back to the tribal tribalism stuff, but also with identity, in terms of what identity do you have in that society by a gender? The, the, it is one of the criticisms I have of the game, and I noticed it rewatching the end sequence before we recorded this. Is that there's very much a gender binary going on there? Because Gaia asks mm-hmm. Sobek, "Oh, like would effectively, him or her? Would you like a boy or a girl?" And like. She's like, oh, a, a girl, definitely. And it's just like, Not in so many words, but yes. There, there's an opportunity for just using them, and mm-hmm. it's very much a he or her. Yeah. Anyway, my own personal hang-ups. Anything else to say on 
identity. Another interesting thing about parental figures to point out is that you find out toward the end that the Zero Dawn Project put in provisions for essentially artificially intelligent, like, nanny robots to raise the first children spawned from the, like, artificial wombs as part of repopulating the planet with people. They are taught, like, history and how to behave and things like that. And eventually, when they're, like, old enough to take care of themselves, go out into the world. And I wonder if there are any effects we can kind of see in terms of the societies that we see that might trace back to the fact that if you go a few generations back, far enough down, you have people who are raised by robots. And, like, what sort of impact that has on, you know, the early parts of those societies. Hmm. It's difficult to say that much because I think that beyond the Nora and the current Sun King's father, we don't really get much in the way of parents of the current age or talk of those parents. Like parenting philosophies and things like that? Yeah, because you don't really have those characters. Which might be a commentary in its own right in that they're kind of detached and not around as much. But no, I don't know that there's a huge amount that's given away there. I just thought it was an interesting thing, because, like, yeah. you know, at some point you have the very first generation of people kind of setting the tone, and I'm sure a lot of the things that they learned were going to be very different than what you would learn socially in particular. Yeah. If you weren't raised by robots. It's possible it's been long enough that any such effects have sort of faded as, yeah. you know, human parenting instincts are more established. I mean, I guess it's been that sort of blank slate that has allowed cultures to form in their own ways, which we can get on a little bit into on our next topic, I think. Okay. Which is... Sort of as a segue, I guess. Like, because they don't have a knowledge base that says men are the people who should run industries and women should stay at home and take care of the kids, like, there's more leeway for them to, through various circumstances of their own survival, choose one way or another for that. So the Kaja are able to become a patriarchal society while Nora are able to become a matriarchal society. And the Banuk seem wildly unconcerned with gender and really focus on the wow these machines are cool Mm -hmm. the blue light has no gender if we all are ultimately the blue light then it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. and there might be a relationship between some of those perspectives and how much is passed on from those first generations because the robot nannies or whatever do teach the children like about the world in various ways and a lot of that knowledge seems to have been lost So some divergence might be from what different groups of humans that came out of the different artificial wombs and artificial raising environments or whatever actually passed on to the next generations. Well, there's a limited amount of knowledge within those cradles. Are they called cradles? I think so. Cradles are where the machines are made. No, those are the uh, cauldrons. Okay, within the cradles. Because of Ted Farrow's decision. Right, which is... A good segue into the apocalypse that happened, which is such a big part of the story. That's true. Even the ones who are directly raised by robots don't get to learn the things that were intended to be learned by humans once the Earth was habitable. Yeah. Because they had these grand plans, they being Elizabeth Sobeck, Elizabeth Sobeck and the other alphas who were in charge of different spheres of the regeneration process of the Earth. One of the parts was the Apollo program. One of the AIs was supposed to be Apollo, which is supposed to pass on the sum of human knowledge, including like art and culture and things like that, to the next phase of human life. 
so that they would know about higher philosophical principles and the mistakes that happened in the past and all of these things. So that they could both, A, not start from scratch, and B, not make the same mistakes is the theory. Right, exactly. But then that doesn't happen because Ted Farrow, who's the billionaire who was... It was really a lot of it. It was his fault because he was part of the biggest push of the militarizing of machines. Decides that human humans can't be trusted with the sum of human knowledge and that they'll just... Like, if they have the same inf- amount of information, they'll just make the same mistakes again, but faster. And so he tanks the project. Yeah. He... Like a privileged asshole. He is the anti-Sean Props. To yes. go back to last week's episode. Very much so. It's that power of one person who is privileged enough to have the ability to make a, a decision that affects everybody for the rest of humanity. Yeah. Because he not only tanks the Apollo project at the last minute so that that human knowledge isn't available to future humanity, he also... Kills all the alphas. Yeah. So that they... Like... So they can't fix it. Because of his guilt, I think, mainly... He didn't want the future generations to know he basically is the reason the world was destroyed, but also he kind of couched this in this philosophical gymnastics that the knowledge was too dangerous and it would burden the new humans and they'd just make the same mistakes, etc. And just decided to make that decision for literally every human who would come after. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he says that it's because he wants to protect them, but it really does seem to be more about his own guilt and not wanting that to be his legacy. Yeah. It's interesting that Horizon Zero Dawn and Seven Eves were coming out and being written around the same time, being worked on around the same time, because they're both centered on this very time-constrained effort to save humanity from extinction, or in this case, restart humanity after extinction. But in this case, it's an anthropogenic apocalypse brought about by essentially hubris, particularly the hubris of Ted Farrow, who decided after being, um, after hiring Elizabeth Sobeck during the environmental crisis in the 40s to save the planet from the environmental crisis engineered by humans, then goes into making war machines instead and wants them to be so effective that he makes them unstoppable and creates a machine that can convert all of the biomass in the world to fuel and is unhackable. You can't take control over it and it eventually is smart enough that it only serves itself. So you have humans overcoming a crisis that they made and then making another one that they can't fix. In 70s, it wasn't the human's fault, but they still have this very short timeline. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Horizon Zero Dawn, it's it's not quite the bringing in the frogs to get rid of the snakes or snakes mm. to get rid of the frogs, whatever it is. Yeah. I know, it's, it's interesting with the parallels to Seven Eves and a lot of the choices that are made as far as preserving humanity. Mm-hmm. But also, like, just there's a few interesting weird little details. Um, we talked about last week with Seven Eves about the, there's the section of the swarm that tries to go to Mars. Right. And I was saying, like, if they, if Neil Stevenson ever was to do a sequel, I could see that being a part of it. 
And within Horizon Zero Dawn, there's found data that you come across that tells you that they try to make a space expedition, I think it's called Odyssey, Mm -hmm. that is written off as a failure eventually because they lose contact or something happens. I forget the exact details. I think it doesn't even get off the ground. Parts of it are already in space. Okay. So I'd be interested to see whether Horizon Zero Dawn 2 touches on anything with that at all. Yeah. But the conclusion in Horizon Zero Dawn, unlike in Seven Eves, seems to be we can't preserve humans. The best we can do is preserve the things we need to make them again. We yeah. can freeze embryos and we can encode a lot of data about plant and animal life, which is also what they do in 70s. They don't bring, you know, they don't know as arc that stuff, at least not literally. They bring all of the, the genetic archives, the data of the DNA of a rabbit, etc. Um, and they do the same thing in Horizon Zero Dawn. It's like, well, all that stuff is going to get converted into diesel, so all we can do is encode it on silicone chips, basically. Yeah. There's also similar, a similar process at work with the gathering of the experts, as there is with Seven Eves, where they identify, okay, these are the tasks that are going to have to happen in order to make this project work and actually get to a point where we're preserving, or in this case, restarting a completely consistent and functioning ecosystem that includes people. And so they're essentially kidnapping the experts they want from around the world, bringing them into this bunker and saying, you can do this project and live the rest of your life in a bunker, or you can live the rest of your life in this bunker, or you can decide to take the suicide pill, but you can't leave because we can't let anyone know that basically there's no hope. Which I find is a very interesting contrast to the narratives in Seven Eves. Because in Seven Eves, they are pretty public with the strategy for saving humanity. But some of them are lying and don't actually think it will work. And in Horizon Zero Dawn, they think their plan will actually work. But they think that people will be too demoralized by the truth. That, nope, we're done with this iteration of humanity. There's no way to stop the swarm of robots. They are going to convert every living thing. Thing on this planet into biofuel and all we can do is put together a system to restart everything later and they don't want people to give up and riot and not keep the they need people to keep fighting to keep the robots in check long enough for the project to be viable so there's an element of this panacea fairy tale for the masses in both but the perspectives on why why to lie to the people is very different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hmm. And I was just thinking you were saying that, that uh, yeah, also the uh, introduction to Ziggy Stardust as well. Yeah. And, uh, People freaking so, out. Yeah. Had a cheerful few episodes this year, haven't we? Uh, um, mm-hmm. Like, it's a case of we have to misdirect the population so that they can do their part of our plan. Yeah. They won't do their part of our plan if they know they're doomed. Which is, honestly, I feel a lack of faith in humanity to work for a future humanity. Yeah. It's not directly my children, I don't care. I do remember one of the things I was reading about Seven Eves is that, like, everyone on the planet that's going to die seems very calm about their fa- the fact. Mm-hmm. Like, almost as a critique of it. I think that if people knew what was going on, then there would probably be at least a certain chunk of humanity that would be pounding at the door saying, let us into your safety bunker. Yeah, that's probably a part of it too. And in fact, I think there might be a couple of notes about riots outside and Mm -hmm. areas being on lockdown and stuff. So Yeah. I wanted to touch a little bit on sort of knowledge. 
And we've talked a little bit about this with some of the identity stuff and um, Aloy's quest for the knowledge of who she is, as it were. And a bit with the Terra Tedfera stuff. Yeah, but there's also the the sort of two sides of the quest for knowledge that go on within this, between the alphas and what knowledge they're choosing to preserve and set up as a thing to be found, and Silence's own quest for knowledge. Pharaoh has this concern that the knowledge that they're putting together could be used to recreate what he already had done and screw over humanity again. And, and so he just screws over humanity again preemptively. Yes, yeah, he's forward-thinking like that. But what he what he deletes isn't just the scientific works, but there's a lot of the a lot of what is deemed to be worthy to be archived for future humanity is art and music, etc. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's that one alpha who seems intent on trying to get death metal and his hardcore porn collection to be saved as part of the archive. But um, aside from that, it, like it's knowledge on how to knowledge of science, etc. But also art, literature, culture. That mm-hmm. side of things. That guy with the death metal and the porn being the guy who's designing Hades, the yes. failsafe mechanic that's supposed to wipe everything out if it's not working. Yes. Fast forward a thousand years, and I feel like a vast majority of humanity would have really benefited from and really enjoyed developing from that cultural aspect that is gone and would have been responsible with a lot of parts of it. I think that Silence might be exactly what Pharaoh was scared of, because Silence's quest for knowledge takes him to a Deathbringer that is inhabited by Hades. Um, Deathbringer being a very large war machine. Yeah. A walking tank, basically. And he ends up forming a group called the Eclipse that cause quite a lot of damage and are the villains for a lot of the game in service of Hades and this endless quest for knowledge at any cost. But he wouldn't have needed to quest for that knowledge if knowledge was freely available to humanity and he had been able to learn and be a scholar. But I think that he would have been inclined to be like Ted Farrow. It's the too busy thinking about what we could do and not enough time thinking about whether we should, he would, I suspect, go, wouldn't it be cool if we did this thing, build it, and then go, oh no, now it's eating all of humanity. But you'd probably be less likely to do that if you had a record of the time that people did that and destroyed everything. Less likely, yes. At least to make the exact same mistake. Yes. So, like, I don't think Ted Farrow was right. I do see an argument that says... That there are people within the culture that have, well, within the cultures that have developed who might use that information for not the best things. The Sun King that's sacrificing half the population of the planet in his sun ring to appease the sun is probably not a good person to have that sort of technology. But again, with all the culture side of things, would he have got there? Mm -hmm. So, I know. It's an interesting double-edged sword, I think. I think I don't think you can make any sort of projection of how specific people that you encounter in that context of the primitive environment that has not benefited from the previous accumulated human knowledge, because those are people who are growing up in, in an environment where they are having to struggle so much to survive. Mm-hmm. And there is a different set of skills prioritized over those generations and different perspectives on life in terms of the value of aggressiveness and the need to take different resources when you can get to them before other people get to them. This is a very salvage-oriented culture, 
in all four of the tribes because the one of the biggest resources that they have to use is the remnants of the metal world. So you're having these people who are growing up and gaining power in those contexts. The context would be completely different if humanity had been kind of restarted from this position of wide knowledge and abundance in terms of being able to produce everything people need to be happy and healthy and comfortable without having to have wars, without having to raid, without having to do all of those things, I think that the entire perspective would be very different. Yeah. I think that a lot of the problems that we see in human cultures around the world today, they're holdovers from periods of time when violence and regression and a zero-sum mentality were adaptive, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Ted Farrow, I think, fundamentally wasn't able to really understand or believe the vision that the alphas had. I don't think he really believed that people in a different context without the baggage of the previous world only knowing the mistakes and the progress that was made you know, as lessons to learn from might be able to be different and look at the world in a different way. Yeah. I don't think he believed that that humans could break that intergenerational trauma cycle, basically. Just a, a giant cultural trauma cycle. Yeah, that's a nice bleak note to end on. I don't think he believed it, but I think Dr. Sobek and some of the other alphas did. Yeah. Some of the people who refused to be alphas, I think, probably had the same limitation of imagination that Ted Farrow did. They didn't think it would work, or they didn't think that humanity would be any better off if they restarted anew. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fundamental difference of perspective of, like, the innate potential of humanity, and whether whether we are fundamentally good or fundamentally evil, fundamentally... Like, how much of an impact our environment has on our development and our moral orientation, I guess. Yeah. So I think that covers most of the topics that we wanted to hit on for this. But I think the big question is, by using Aloy as a protagonist who's effectively an outsider to several different human cultures, what is Guerrilla Games saying about humanity as a whole? It's an interesting question. I'd be interested to hear your answer first. That's not how questions are supposed to work. Well, I think that Aloy comes across a lot of very different people in this game, and some of them she gets along with very easily and very well, and some of them she just fights. But there are the ones that she talks with, and they explain something to her, and it's something that has always been a part of their culture, that she says, but why? And their answer is usually, because that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are the moments that become the most interesting and where the statement's being made most strongly. Because we can say that Guerrilla Games is saying bandits are bad, murdering and raping people is bad. Yes, okay, sure. Hot take. But when there's the person that you have the conversation with and you're challenging those fundamental beliefs, I think that if you were to go through and enumerate them, each one would demonstrate that Aloy is saying why would you do that and not just show compassion? Mm -hmm. Or alternatively, like, why would you do this thing that while it might gain something for you, hurts anybody else? It's highlighted a bit in that final speech mm -hmm. um, when the conversation between Sobek and Gaia, where Sobek's mother is saying, it's not enough to be smart, you have to be kind too. Yeah. Um, but throughout the game, it is showcased in a variety of ways, I would say. And that last speech is a nice 
sum up for the final part uh, for the final part of the story and I think that message. So we'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. So the last lesson Rost teaches Aloy before the proving is basically about as a brave, it would be your duty to fight for your tribe. And Aloy says, my tribe, you said I wouldn't need them. And he says, but I never said the tribe wouldn't need you. The strength to stand alone is the strength to make a stand, to serve a purpose greater than yourself. That is the lesson you must learn and remember it after the proving and after I am gone. So it's that exact same thing. And then later Mm -hmm. when you have the conversation at the end, Gaia asks Elizabeth Sobek what her mother told her after she had caught a tree on fire by accident. And her mother showed her the dead baby birds from the tree. And Elizabeth Sobek says that her mom told her, she said I had to care. She said, Elizabeth, being smart will count for nothing if you don't make the world a better place. You have to use your smarts to count for something, to serve life, not death. And it's exactly the same lesson. It's that no matter what you're doing or what you're good at, it isn't meaningful unless it is in service to something greater than you and ideally to help other people and make the world a better place. But it all comes down to the self-centered orientation is not what you need to have. And I, I do think that is a commentary on humanity and like what it means to be human or what it should mean to be human because, as I've mentioned before on our podcast, humans are a social species We are not built to survive alone, and it's important for us, in order for us to survive as a community, that we think in terms of community, that we think in terms larger than our own survival and our own immediate benefit. Yeah. Even, like, the little side quests a lot of the time in Horizon Zero Dawn support this. There are a bunch of times when the little side mission she's encountered is because some small band or single person have figured out a way to enrich themselves in a way that they don't realize endangers or inconveniences other people. And Aloy is there being like, why are you an asshole? And they're like, oh, but this is, see how smart we are? We've managed to cleverly herd these snap moths to this area or these glint hawks to this area so that we can get all the good salvage really easily and never have to like hunt it down, hunt it out or whatever. And she's like, yeah, but there are people that live over here. And now a bunch of people are dead and a lot of or kids are dead or whatever. And you guys are assholes. Go somewhere else. You've decided that your own lining your pockets is more important than others' safety, basically. Which is what Ted Farrow did, too. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, what is the best ship in in this video game? It does seem like everyone, like every major character Aloy meets has some vague, sometimes subtler than others, romantic interest in her. Which, if any, do you think would actually be a good match for Aloy, like, that she might be happy with at some point? If in Horizon Zero Dawn 2 you could marry one of the characters that you have quest lines with in in 1, which one would you go with? Well, I'm just, I'm trying to think through them. Okay, there's a lot. <laughs> so, there's Teb, who, uh... Is he really, like, a love interest? He has an interest. Okay, maybe. Who has, like, been making clothes for Aloy and things. But I think he, uh, he's a little too worshipful of her, so I don't think that one works. That would be kind of weird. Erend and her have, like, an interesting relationship. Like, there's a little bit of playfulness there at times, but 
Aaron really needs to get his shit together before he's like he's not in a good place to date right now. Yeah, and I I know I think Aloy recognizes that. Like he has a serious drinking problem. He's dealing with the death of his sister. I'm not saying don't date someone who has issues, but I am saying from their interactions, she seems to maybe not respect his choices and coping. Yeah, and that's that's not going to be a healthy foundation for a relationship. There's Sun King of Ard, mm-hmm. but. I don't know, he, uh... He's kind of on the rebound. Yeah, he, he's very much, like... He, he is also dealing with the death of Eren's sister. Um, yeah. That, he's, he's taken that hard. So, like, I, I... He's not in a great place. Um, but he acknowledges that, like, he kind of came on too strong a little weirdly with Aloy and is like, I'm sorry, like, I'm in a really weird place right now, basically. And she's like, I get it, it's fine. So at least, I think he also knows he's on the rebound. But I think otherwise there is, like, a real mutual respect there. Definitely, so, like, yes. I don't know. Who else is there? There's Varl. Do you think so? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Um, especially like in like the later scenes, like when everyone kind of comes back together to help with the the big stand against the eclipse and stuff. Yeah. I think there's some some tension there. At least Varl seems interested and seems to be sort of wondering who Aaron is and stuff. Oh yeah. 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 It's like there's a little bit of jealousy. Like who's this guy? There's the Forge Master, who's I think is very flirty with Aloy. Yes. And yes. there's her hawk, who I think is also kind of flirty with her. Maybe not quite so much. Maybe I'm just reading too much lesbian subtext in there. A little bit. There's a little bit in there. See, I think that that might be the issue that I come down on, is that Aloy is, intentionally or not, sort of portrayed as being asexual. Yeah, she's not interested in any way. So, like, with any of these pairings, like, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that because there's no interest in the other direction. I think that there's several of them who might be very happy with her, but I'm not sure that she's in a position in her life where she has an interest in anyone else. She really enjoys being off in the wilderness by herself, away from people. So... If you weren't such a sociopath, you could make a case for Nils. They like the same sorts of things, just for totally different reasons. They seem to be very independent people, happy to, like, separate and then be happy to see one another again after a while. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I'm going to get all sorts of Horizon Zero Dawn fan hate. Like, Nils! How dare you! I don't know. Like, I I can kind of see your point. Like, if you can get rid of the sociopathy. And the fact that he's a war criminal. Well, I mean, he served his time. He recognizes that what he did was not right, necessarily. Like, I, they do have an interest... You, you make a point, like, that she wants a solitary time. Mm-hmm. And, like, they could see each other from time to time, and that might work. And but he doesn't ever I, seem to really express sexual interest in her, so she's not interested in a sexual relationship. Like, he doesn't seem to care about that. Yeah. he's uh, He gets his rocks off with his murdering. Um... <laughs> I mean, I think what you did just suggest there is that, like, destroying bandit camps is their date. (laughs) At which point, like, what do you do on the third bandit camp? I'm not sure. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't think that there is any compelling argument that she has any interest in a relationship, so I don't really have a good answer. That's fair. I, I wouldn't have her marry anyone at this point. So. I didn't say... Well, I, I did say maybe if they had that as an option. Yes. Okay, I did say that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that right now. Do, who, who would you have? Um, I don't really know that there's in-story support for anyone over the others, but the of the ones that we meet, I think I like Varl and the Forge Master the best. The Forge Master just seems like a really great person. Like, she just seems like she enjoys life. She knows what she likes to do. She's curious. But I think that maybe that's the problem I would have with it. Like, Val, okay. I don't find him terribly deep or interesting, but I can see the two of them, I'm sure. But the For- Forge Master, like, I think might be curious about Aloy. M- maybe like a toy. 
Mm. Like, I don't think that there's, like, I think she sort of messes with Aloy a little bit, so I don't know. I don't know, I read it as sort of like a, a flirty kind of teasing. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of feeling around to see if there's any mutual interest there. Yeah, okay. I don't know that Varl would be a great long-term relationship choice. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Whereas, and Teb is the, the guy who's obsessed with you in middle school that you're just yeah. like... That kind of makes you aware that that's a thing that happens, but that it's not really, like, an actual romantic option. Because, again, the worshipfulness is weird. Yeah. Aaron is maybe the high school or college, the college boyfriend who, like, you drink with a lot, and then you're like, ah, I don't know. You seem to be kind of unmotivated. So what's the VOD? Never mind. We've gone too far down this rabbit hole. That's, that's who you get with if you want to be a part of a power couple. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Like, they would be a power couple. Yeah. That's that's the, if you want to rule the world. Especially because especially Aloy is kind of semi-worshipped by the Nora by the end. Like, she, they know she's the chosen one, basically. The I think a few her. people kneel. Yeah, like, there's a lot of kneeling and, like... And a lot of Aloy being like, this is stop really, kneeling. This, this is weird, please stop. So there's, like, a lot of worshipfulness, which is, again, a reason I don't know that Varl is a great option either, because I think he's a little caught up in that, too. Not as badly as some of them, but he's not going to see her as, like, a normal person anymore, and that's a problem. Yeah. But Aloy is being seen that way by her people, and Avad is seen that way by his people, so there's that. Like, they kind of have that in common. Yeah. So I guess there's not really a good match, which I knew, but they all have their arguments. Some definitely not great, though. I think Aloy could be self-partner. Yes. Yeah. Aloy is self-partnered. Yeah. She's she's being worshipped by a few too many people. She really just needs time with herself, and she's perfectly happy that way. Yeah. Shall we move on to some fun facts? Sure. So I've got a couple of fun facts. The first one is that the head of the Kaja Empire is known as the Sun King. That's the position. Mm-hmm. Which obviously they worship the sun, etc., etc. However, the Sun King was a person. Louis XIV, right. King of France, yes. was known as the Sun King. And I had to double-check the exact reasoning for this, but he apparently considered himself to be the direct representative of God and believed that he had divine right to wield absolute power of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. A popular belief of kings. Right. But he selected the sun as his emblem because as a representation of that. So I thought that was an interesting note as a choice that I'm assuming was informed. Probably. We mentioned in passing that there was that there's a homosexual relationship represented in a mm-hmm. very incidental sort of way. Yep. The game, I think, is fairly good for LGBT representation. There's several characters who are in same-sex relationships or desire a same-sex relationship. Um, you mentioned the Forge Master. Mm-hmm. There's a few other people that we come across. There is also a trans character in the game. Yes. Who heads up Sunstone Rock, which is the Kaja prison. Yeah. That is not quite so incidentally involved, like it is sort of raised as a question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's handled fairly well. Yeah, and that Aloy mistakes that person for a woman. Yeah. And that person is like, nope. Mm-hmm. It's like, I fought for this position, so fuck you. <laughs> and it makes sense within the culture of the Kajalam that some of the language that is used in that is a little bit binary in its understanding. Mm-hmm. Um and also, like, equates masculinity with strength. Yeah. Which would be the only issue I'd have with it, except that I think it does make sense within the world, so. Yeah. 
The last thing I have is the archery in the game is known to be really well done and very satisfying to play. And Polygon actually did a video where they talked to the creators of the game and like the sound designer about why it is so satisfying. And they did a really nice breakdown of how the different parts of the animation combined with the use of sound to sort of illustrate hits, etc., work together to make it that much more satisfying. So we'll link that video in our show notes. It's just about five minutes, and it's a really interesting watch. So. Mm-hmm. so some interesting things about the game that I found is that because they set this game in a po- post-apocalyptic setting, Guerrilla Games consulted with anthropologists to authenticate the world's decay over a millennium. Another thing I thought was interesting is that Sony was reluctant to have the main character be female, and so they did focus testing to see if it was a marketable decision for the game, because we live in a shitty, sexist world. How is this still a conversation we're having? I mean, it's a conversation that was happening between 2010 and 2017 when this game came out. The game was first pitched in 2010, and Um, then they were developing it from like 2011 to 2017 when it was released. I still find that frustrating, but okay. Oh, it totally is, yeah. Um, It was apparently one of about 40 concepts that were pitched for a new game for Guerrilla Games after Killzone 3, and Mm. um, was considered the most risky of the concepts, Yeah, but they still did it. It was pitched by their art director, which makes sense, because it's a really beautiful like visually beautiful story and engages in a lot of visual storytelling so that makes sense but yeah so that's pretty cool oh and back to the thing about consulting with anthropologists they were also brought in to figure out like how the tribes would develop like to extrapolate how those processes work in humans uh, Mm. to make it more realistic in the game which i also think is really cool that makes sense with a lot of the way the tribal stuff happens Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah cool okay so i think that that's everything for horizon zero dawn I think so. Okay. So next week we're going to be talking about the four seasons of The Good Place, as that's just been wrapped up. And then the week after we'll do something else. Yep. And then we'll have a March schedule out before too long, hopefully. If anyone is going to be at JordanCon in Atlanta this year in April, it's a Wheel of Time fans convention. Charlene is actually going to be there. Not in like an official capacity, she's just going. But you know, if you would like to meet up with her and talk to her about the podcast at all, I'm sure she'd be excited to meet you. I don't know why I'm saying this for her when she's sitting right here. Would you be excited to meet them? Yeah. Cool. We're also probably going to try and get some ribbons that I can pass out at the con for people's badges. So keep a lookout for that if you're one of the people who goes and collects them. Yep. Yes, we're going to get business cards and everything. It's very exciting. Okay. So please do recommend us to your friends and family and random people you meet on the street. If you would like to continue this conversation, you can post about it on social media with hashtag Unramblings. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, on Twitter at UnramblingsPod, and you can email us with ideas, suggestions, feedback, etc. at UnramblingsPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next week. I think that there is a corkscrew that is listed as an ancient toothpick. Yeah, that one makes me cringe. Every time I think about it, I'm just like, ah, who the hell thinks that? Who is using it that way? But that, I think that might be my favorite. If nothing else, because you always file them in like pile, you always find them in like piles of debris. It makes me worry someone has tried using one as a toothpick and you know, picked it up and like cleaned some of the dirt off and then scratched it their teeth with it. Ah! ah.